You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Richard. Hi, Bob. How you doing? Good. How about yourself? I cannot complain. Uh, let me uh, introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show. Available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Richard Hananya, a political scientist, and uh, some other things. You're president of something. What are you president of? Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideologies, the CSPI for short. Are you still at Defense Priorities? Yeah, I still have an affiliation. So you're a research fellow there, I think. But most important for our purposes, uh, you are the author of, of a new book, congratulations, called Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about. Now, the subtitle of the book the title of the book, as the title of the book suggests, it's in some ways an academic book for an academic audience, but it has real world stakes, which are kind of spelled out by the subtitle, how generals, weapons manufacturers, and foreign governments shape American foreign policy. Uh, you could say, I think without egregiously distorting it, that it's about uh, why American foreign policy is not coherent. Uh, right. I, I might go so far as to say why it's so screwed up. But in any event, it's also about why. And, and this is kind of a bridge between the real world applications and the, and the academic argument. It's about why it would be naive to expect for American foreign policy to be coherent in the first place. Right. right I think that's true. Right. And uh, why don't we. Um, well, why don't you take it from there and then I will, you know, step in and maybe steer it either toward the academic or toward the layperson uh, as, as I deem necessary. But, but, but what, is your, what is your opening pitch about the book? Yeah, so the way you uh, describe it, you know, you, you hit on something interesting. So uh, my background is studying academic international relations. So I come at this uh, having, you know, read international relations theory and uh, uh, empirical quantitative work and all that stuff, and sort of just being uncomfortable with it for a while, but using it sort of as the framework to try to understand foreign policy and what's going on. At the same time, I'm somebody who's, and I've written about this, who thinks that academia in general is a little bit too divorced from the real world. I, you know, I think it often uh, gets in love with its theories and doesn't uh, pay enough attention to what's actually happening in the world and is not too interested in checking how well those theories work against everything else. So I take both those perspectives um, in writing this book, and it's something I wrote, you know, while I was still um, thinking about an academic career, but sort of, you know, uh, once one foot out the door. Um, and so the so the book I, so the book starts with some theory. So it's got something for everything. If you like uh, international relations theory, if you're interested in social science, social science and how academics think about these things and why, in my opinion, they're often they're wrong, their frameworks don't work, you know, there's something in there for you. If you're just interested in American foreign policy and you want to know, um, you know, what, what, what were we doing during the war on terror? What are the um, what are the causes and the effects and sort of the mechanics of the American sanctions regime? You know, you can skip the theory chapter and you can just read those chapters uh, uh, too. Um, and so, the, you know, that's, that's the perspective of the book. And, uh, you know, as far as the question whether 
it would be naive to think that there's a um, that there could be coherence in American foreign policy. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, something I, I punt on a little bit in the book is I don't, you know, I don't apply it. I don't say this is a universal theory of foreign policy. You could imagine states um, where there's more centralized control, um, or you could imagine the U.S. becoming something like that, like during wartime, like World War II. I think we had a, you could say we had a grand strategy for winning the war. Um, it's about America in normal times, you know, probably to a lesser extent, democracy, right. the more similar uh, system is to ours in its historical situation and its, um, you know, sort of a, a governance makeup, the more the theory in the book applies. But yes, I, I think you're right. I think it's naive to think in terms of grand strategy for American, uh, when thinking about American foreign policy. And I argue that this is, uh, my way is consistent with the way we think about politics and governance more generally. Right. And I, I definitely want to get to that question of how broadly applicable this kind of skepticism of of how coherent foreign policy would likely be. How, how, to what extent does it apply to adversaries? Because our, our main adversaries are not as democratic as our country, maybe are not as pluralistic as our country. And you might expect more rationality. And, and I don't wanna jump too far ahead, but I think in a weird way, a common mistake we make with, with these particular adversaries like China, Russia, and Iran, is to attribute too little rationality to the foreign policy in a sense. I don't want to get into that now, but I think you know what I mean, right? Like, sure, yeah. And and and, and well, and, and to a little bit more of a uh, kind of a, a, a tease uh, is is what we'll get into is I think your your theory helps explain why we sometimes don't attribute even as much rationality to those countries as we should, because some of the forces you see as corrupting, I, that's my word, our foreign policy, um, encourage us to look at other countries as, irrash, as more irrational than they are in a weird way, right? Yeah, I mean, a big part of my, uh, part of my book is, you know, there's, uh, uh, there's a part about concentrated interest, that's sort of the heart of the book, but there's also a little bit more of a subtle theory in that I don't say ideas don't matter. I think that ideas and interests are sort of intertwined. Um, so there's, you know, the, the, uh, would people say it's American foreign policy driven by certain ideas. Yes, in a, in a certain sense, but there's all kinds of people out there with all kinds of ideas. Uh, the people who run foreign policy in Washington are not representative, for example, of the field of international relations, not necessarily right. representative of the public at large. So which people with which ideas uh, sort of get into uh, positions of power and, and influence? And I argue that they're the people who have ideas that are uh, conducive to the interests and, you know, the sort of the, the ego and the, you know, the, uh, whether material interests or, uh, uh, or uh, non-tangible interests of powerful concentrated interests with a stake in foreign policy outcomes. Um, and so I, you select for a kind of person, I think, who's geared towards a more, mil more militaristic solutions. And I think that if I think that if you think in terms of other, you know, international relations theorists are, are good at coming up with why, you know, ways that we can make peace and ways we cannot fight because, you know, they, they, they see, they, they, they draw a chart and they say that it's game theory. And if we can just get to cooperate, there's often a way to do that. And I think our foreign policy establishment um, selects for people who, who don't think in those terms. They, they think in sort of terms of good versus evil. Um, or sometimes, you know, you say, well, we don't attribute to them rationality or we attribute to them rationality, but like unlimited 
their ambitions. So if right. Putin does something in Ukraine now, oh, he'll be he'll go to Poland and he'll go to Germany next. It can't just be he can't just you know care about Ukraine. Um, and you'll see the same thing with China. You know, it's a it's almost a plan for world domination or something along those lines, remaking the world order. It can't be just you know a few border disputes. Um, so you're right. There's this uh, aspect of not seeing them as rational. And then there's an aspect of it. when you see them as rational, uh, see them as having unlimited ambitions, and in which case you just have to you just have to fight them. I mean, there's not much you can do there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I guess when I say irrational, I, I, I mean, partly, yeah, motivated by something other than consideration for the actual well-being of their country. Right. right. I mean, uh, or, or the well-being of, of their people. Uh, oh. They, they, you know, uh, but but anyway, we'll, we'll get into all of that. Let's let's start at the beginning. So you're saying that in a way, the whole field of international relations, which of course includes a number of different perspectives, you've got realists and you've got different kinds of realists and you've got liberal internationalists and so on. But you're saying the whole field pretty much assumes that you should treat a given country as kind of a single rational actor that has clear goals and pursues them rationally, right? Well, I, okay, so I think if you went to the typical uh, international relations scholar and you say the entire field, um, you know, thinks in these terms, I think they would they would object very strongly, and they would say, you know, this is one sort of branch and one one part of IR, and even you know, with what's called liberalism in international relations, it's more optimistic about cooperation, but also starts with the irrational actor model. But the, but they're right that it, like a lot of academia, it's fragmented, and there's a million different people who believe in you know a million different things and a million different theories. My argument um, is that well, first of all, I think real, I think if you had to pick one. Um, you know, one sort of dominant worldview. It's probably realism slash liberalism. When you put those two, those are both rational choice-based models. When you put those together, you would maybe not get a majority, but you'll at least get plurality. So if we have to talk about international relations as one thing, I mean, it would have to be that rather than And do you want to else. spell out just quickly for people what you, what, you know, and you'll have to oversimplify, but sure. realism and, and liberalism, what, what you, or liberal internationalism or whatever, what you mean by those? Okay, so yeah, real, realism, I mean, more with the most uh, commonly associated with people like John Mersheimer, uh, Stephen Walt, uh, the late Kenneth, Kenneth Waltz. And the idea is basically, yeah, we trace states as unitary actors um, that, uh, and you can basically build models based on based on that idea. So if you uh, have any stuff, You've, uh, or your audience has studied economics at all. It's basically just think about economics where you, you know, microeconomics, you start with the individual and then you build theories about what happens in the world based on, you know, thinking about the individual being rational, right? It's this, but it's this, but basically applied to states. Now, realism, you know, that that's like sort of the, uh, positive definition, sort of how it explains the world. There's also a normative aspect to it in that it, it, the people who have been famous realists have tended to be skeptical of a human rights-based foreign policy. They tended to be skeptical of universalism. They're not uh, pacifists or, or isolationists, but they don't, you know, they, they, they've tended to be, you know, sort of skeptical of Vietnam, Iraq, these little wars they think that they think don't matter and are driven by ideology and and pathologies in the system, mm -hmm. um, and then you have um, you have liberalism, which is basically it, it starts with the same assumption, rational actor model. But I, you know, I, I would I would say that the the difference is that 
it, um, it's a little more optimistic about cooperation. So people like John Eikenberry, he says, you know, the American, uh, the US uh, set up uh, the post-World War II order and basically everyone figured out how to live, you know, uh, in a sort of way that was beneficial for most people because of, you know, American hegemony. You don't have to assume anyone was doing it for uh, the greater good or for some kind right. of ideological reasons. St state interest uh, is, uh, is enough. Um, and I would, I would say, so these are maybe the plurality sort of way of looking at international relations. I, I'd say a couple other things too, and that uh, when you're sort of, when you read like, you know, just a typical op-ed and say the Wall Street Journal or in the media, I, it's more, the, this kind of a worldview is more dominant there than it would be even in academia. So as far as, you know, the public understanding of international relations, like I had a review of the Blue Cities Trap uh, by Graham Allison, and this was a book, not like something academics take very seriously, but taken very seriously in sort of, you know, the punditocracy. Um, and this is just a, a pure sort of realist uh, under uh, understanding. And, of and the, it's uh, the idea idea that, and it's applied to the U.S. and China, but that when there is a great power that's in decline and there's an ascendant power, which would be China in this case, there's almost inevitable conflict or, or very likely conflict because the great power is going to have trouble adjusting to its new status and so on. Yeah, exactly. And there's all kinds of you know, problems with this. And, you know, I, I go into them, but yeah, that's, that's basically yeah. the idea is that this is, this is the sort of a realist type of theory. And so like when, when people, people's idea of academic, academic international relations, I think relies heavily um, on this idea. And, and another, and another point that I make is I think that if you get away from realism, you have, you have a hard time justifying international relations as its own field. So I think this is uh, maybe something people not in academia oh. D don't necessarily care about, but there's political science and there's American politics and there's, you know, international relations. And the, the, the sort of the, you know, the, um, the justification for having your own subfield is you have some kind of methodology or some kind of insight that does not apply to others. And so you could argue that um, if you sort of do away with the unitary actor model, you might be, you're in a place where you're using the same tools as the rest of political science, which other political scientists might not care about or the rest of the world might not care about. But uh, I, I think that sort of self-justification for the field has been a motivator behind these ideas becoming so uh, influential. Okay. I mean, it, just a little further on realism and, and, and liberalism. I mean, could one say uh, that... Uh, and I, and I think this would be inconsistent with what you just said, maybe, but, but couldn't one say that liberals think more than realists that actually there are a lot of non-zero-sum situations in the world such that cooperation is in your a nation's self-interest, A, and B, uh, nations being rational recognize those, or we can at least hope that and act on them. And so you get cooperation. So, so they're both assuming uh, unitary rational actors uh, that act on self-interest and just assuming different things about the extent of non-zero-sum dynamics in the world. Yeah, that, that, I, that's that's right. I mean, that, that, that's why liberalism is, is seen as sort of an extension or, you know, it's not a complete refutation of uh, realism. There's something right. called constructivism, which is more about, you know, the ideas and sort of idealism and social construction of the whole thing and related to like postmodern philosophy and all that. But yeah, that, that's the difference between realism uh, and, and liberalism. And I guess, you know, my view is I, I, I think I do agree with, I mean, I do agree with liberal liberals, you know, liberals in the academic sense that there's a lot more opportunities for cooperation than say American foreign policy uh, uh, tends to assume. Mm -hmm. um, it's still, though, I think I, I, I would different. I would still take uh, issue with it as sort of a unitary actor model as a uh, 
as an explanation for how American foreign policy actually works. I mm-hmm. think it's still as you know as chaotic as you know as I described right. in the book. But yeah, I mean these are sort of two different you know issues. How much uh, cooperate beneficial cooperation you think is possible, and then sort of how coherent you think American foreign policy. There's you know two axes here um, that you know you can, you can separate. Okay, so your one thing you're saying is why don't we look at foreign policy the more like the way we look at domestic policy. When we look at domestic policy, we don't really expect it to make a lot of sense to be coherent because we we recognize that it's 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 you know we've seen the sausage factory at work here and we recognize that the domestic policy making process is the result of conflict among a number of interests and sometimes one prevails sometimes the other prevails there's no like grand architect whose wishes are always realized in domestic policy. You just have this big battle and you win some and you lose some. And so there isn't necessarily overarching philosophical consistency. And you're saying, why would you expect foreign policy to be, there will be differences in the nature of the domestic influences brought to bear on foreign policy as opposed to domestic. But you're saying broadly speaking, it's just gonna be in both cases a free for all and you shouldn't expect coherence to emerge, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of just inertia and sort of, you know, historical contingency. So, you know, the, uh, you know, two big, huge parts of the federal budget are Social Security and Medicare. You know, I don't think anyone says we have a grand strategy in this country for dealing with retirement, right? You know, we had FDR, you know, he, he wanted to do some things, he, he did them, and sort of it's been running on autopilot, the, you know, the, uh, the whole, the uh, mostly since. Um, and then you look at something like, I, you know, I bring up immigration because it's such an interesting case, because it's such an interesting uh, example of. Uh, unintended consequences. Um, basically, nobody, uh, d- nobody, people thought they were uh, in the 1960s. Uh, basically, they tried to direct the immigration system towards family reunification, which they thought would keep the white majority, which actually had the opposite effect because there was uh, chain migration. People would come from non-white countries, and they were the ones who had uh, 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 relatives overseas. And so we, we we get this. I mean, if you look at just a typical history of immigration or a typical history of healthcare, they you know that that's that's sort of a default way of understanding things. Now you look at American foreign policy, and there's more continuance here, or just as much continuance as in these other fields. You know, one of my favorite uh, things in the uh, little factoids in the book is if you look at uh, 2019, where the American, where the most American uh, troops are stationed, uh, besides Afghanistan, you have uh, Germany, uh, Italy, Japan, and South Korea. Now, those are the same countries with the most American troops in 1950, right? The U.S. is still basically occupying the Axis powers and fighting the Korean War. You know, what a, what a kind of coincidence is that, that our grand strategy requires us to, to still be in these countries, you know, 70 years later. You know, 30 years, we could still be we could still be in those countries, and people would say this is this is American grand strategy. But it, it seems like the, the continuation is the most important thing. It's like if, you know, if we didn't have troops in Afghanistan, um, nobody would say we'd send them at this point. Um, and no, now, you know, now that they're not there, nobody is seriously arguing or able to argue that they can go back, right? It's just that we understand that there's sort of this path dependency uh, here. And it's, you know, it's, I'm, trying, I'm trying to basically integrate international relations to our, to I think what are more sophisticated understandings of, of politics when we think right. about most other issues. And this is where uh, the term public choice theory comes in. Again, the title of the book is Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy. Uh, I, I don't know very much about public choice theory, but I gather the idea is it is applied to the domestic policymaking process. Uh, the assumption is that you do have these groups that re- that represent 
a bunch of people sometimes like the American Association of Retired Persons or whatever they say the letters stand for now that they've kind of rebranded. Um, and they rationally, more or less rationally pursue the perceived interests of their constituency. So you have all of these rational actors making the policy, but the result is not rational and coherent. And here's a sentence from your book. Uh, the irony of this approach to foreign affairs is that if we treat individuals as rational actors, then we have a reason to believe uh, that states will not be. And, and you're saying that's, we understand that to be the case in domestic policy, that, that you have these rational groups representing people who belong to the groups for rational interest reasons, but the result is not rational coherent policy. You're saying the same irony in a way prevails in foreign policy. Yeah, right. Yeah, you just, I think you described it well. So, you, you know, you, uh, public choice theory is basically economists trying to understand political outcomes. And they take the tools of economics, which is, you know, the rational individual, uh, you know, at, at its heart, and then apply it to, you know, legislators acting the way they do and lobbyists and corporations and, and voters and, and everyone else, right? And, you know, one of the, one of the insights of, of public choice theory, maybe, maybe a fundamental insight or close to it, you know, if you're going to say just sort of one of the headlines of this, um, uh, you know, of, of what public choice has contributed to our understanding is that small concentrated groups with an outsized uh, interest in an issue are more likely to overcome a collective action problem. So if you're Boeing or you're Raytheon and, you know, billions and billions of dollars depend on the outcome of the, uh, of the negotiation of the Pentagon budget and, you know, you're, put, the, put them against the taxpayer um, who, you know, might have an interest in paying lower taxes or, but it's basically the entire country, right? So no individual taxpayer or very, or has really much of an interest to, to care about the uh, Pentagon budget all that much. Boeing and Raytheon, you know, will get their way because they're a small, they're, they're concentrated interest. So the groups that I highlight are concentrated interests who care most about foreign policy um, and they have, they have rational reasons to care about foreign policy. And rational choice theory is not, you know, is not always just about material interest, you know, you, you, the, the the analysis can work if there's a you know small group with a moral uh, with a moral concern or a, you know moral uh, uh, stake in an issue, right? Or people right. who have sort of a you know prestige based um, uh, interest. Like I think a lot of the national security establishment, there is you know financial interest there, but I think there's a you know a prestige based uh, uh, thing there, and I think we have to think about that too. Um, and so you know this is and so this is the jumping off point for the analysis. It's funny because the um, the uh, uh, you know, people sort of see a rational choice in international affairs and rational choice in economics as sort of complementary. And there was actually a paper that uh, looked at the um, economic views of uh, um, international relations scholars who accept realism. And there was a, a correlation between that and accepting sort of more free market uh, oriented policies. And it's it's actually, you know, the, and if you look at our sort of our, our landscape of uh, uh, American uh, foreign policy, I, I think that uh, conservatives, you know, tend to like markets and they tend to like this sort of hard-headed realism that sort of resembles um, resembles how you think about markets. And my, my argument is this: there's a superficial resemblance there. But if you really think about it, and I think libertarians get this right because libertarians will take that, you know, the rational uh, ch choice model of economics and apply it more consistently than, than conservatives do. They won't, you know, sort of uh, have this cognitive dissonance when it comes to foreign policy for reasons of, you know, nationalism or patriotism or whatever. Um, I, you know, I argue that the rational choice model, exactly as that quote says, uh, as applied to individuals, is very inconsistent uh, to applying it to states. And you just kind of highlighted one difference between foreign policy and domestic 
policy, and it's reflected in, in your subtitle, which is, again, how generals, weapons manufacturers, and foreign governments shape American foreign policy. I mean, you might note a contract, you, you know, those do represent what you see as kind of the big three constituencies in a way, the big three shapers where generals are a stand in for the whole kind of national security establishment, I guess. And then, yeah, I think, yeah, it was the title was long enough as this. Yeah. So, so, uh, but, but, you know, the first thing that strikes you about that is, well, those three groups aren't collectively very representative of the American people. When you look at domestic policy, you've got these big groups that represent a lot of people, National Rifle Association, AARP. And of course, it, it, it has been said about foreign policy that, you know, I mean, this difference has been noted in the sense that what is said is that because so few Americans really care much about foreign policy, unless you got like a Vietnam situation and suddenly your sons are coming home in body bags, um, the, uh, you know, because of, the, of this, you know, pretty widespread apathy about foreign policy, the field is left to a few intensely motivated actors and they have disproportionate influence. And you, and in your view, these are the three, the three that uh, we just mentioned, but, but that, that is an important difference between foreign policy and domestic policy, right? Yeah. I mean, the sort of, yeah, voters, yeah, they care about, you know, all kinds of things, right. And you can make foreign policy salient um, or you can make, you know, leaders can make it less salient, but people have no direct experience. I mean, to them, they're, they're just, you know, places on maps and, you know, the knowledge, I mean, you can, uh, you know, it's impolite to say, but, you know, there's, you know, uh, polls on, you know, what, you know, can, how many people can find Iran on a map or how many people can find Iraq on a map. And, and you know, they're, they're dismally low. I mean, the knowledge here is just very, very low. I mean, knowledge on policy in general is low, but social security, I mean, people at least know, you know, a check is coming and, you know, taxes, people know, you know, how much they're paying in taxes. And so there's, you know, some direct experience, um, you know, with, with what happening um, and some direct sort of day-to-day uh, -day interest. But yeah, with foreign policy, you know, uh, you know, most Americans don't don't travel abroad. They don't have, you know, familiar familiarity with foreign language. I mean, these are just abstract things. You know, what is China or what is Germany or what is Russia to the to the average American? You know, it's something they hear about in the news. And it's so funny, you know, I see polls sometimes they'll say, oh, you know, public opinion of China has like dropped. Like, okay, like the average American has not ever met a Chinese person at any point. They haven't done any research on China. It's just basically a measure of, you know, the 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 media coverage of China or Russia or any other country. Um, and so that, you know, there's, there's you know, these things that exist as abstractions and, you know, and, and there's, you know, other things that make foreign policy, you know, difficult because you just the whole entire practice of sort of classified information, right? Like, so like in social security policy or tax policy, they don't say we have all this information that we rely on that we can't tell you the public about, right? Um, and so maybe to a certain extent that's necessary, but I think anyone who's looked at it reasonably knows they overdo the, uh, the classification thing. And then, you know, the way it works in practice is often the classified information they want you to see will get leaked and be on the front page of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and right. the Washington Post. Uh, so there's this, you know, there's these, there's all these natural advantages, I think, that elites and concentrated interest have in foreign policy that they don't have elsewhere, you know, the inherent secrecy of it, the, the classified information, the lack of personal experience. And, you know, this makes it just so divorced from sort of, you know, uh, uh, normal politics that these these groups can sort of run wild. I mean, the, you know, the U.S. adds Macedonia to, to, to NATO. I mean, you know, what percentage of the population even knows that happened? It's got to be, you know, just a few, a few percent, but, you know, potentially has large consequences down the line. Now, now if Russia invades Ukraine or, you know, there's, there's some, uh, uh, there's some actual conflict, then Americans will start tuning in and they won't know what's been going on the last 30 right. years. And, and, Europe because they and, never, at, yeah. 
And when they start tuning in, part of your argument is that what they see, you know, how their views will be shaped by what they see on the media is itself shaped by these actors, right? These three interests that you're identifying um, will be non-trivially responsible for the, sh the shaping of people's ideas on this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book that I, you know, I was one of the sort of the, uh, one of those facts that really had a big influence on the way I saw the world was the project for a new American century. I think a lot of your, uh, 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 listeners will know what that is. For those who don't, they were these uh, neocons who were very influential in uh, conservative politics and sort of were in position to push the U.S. into Iraq after 9-11. Um, it was basically founded by a um, by a, a former executive of Lockheed Martin. I mean, it, it's amazing, right? Is that it's right? Like, uh, yeah, I, exactly. I mean, the public face was like Bill Crystal, Bob Kagan, but who who was the who was the who was the founding? Uh, his, name Bruce, his name was Bruce Jackson. Um, he yeah. was like the the you know the vice president or something something like something very high up and uh, it, 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 he came straight from Lockheed Martin. Well, well by the way, to get back to Ukraine, and uh, if you go back in the '90s, I, I came across a New York Times piece about when they were deciding whether to expand NATO. Some group like the Committee to blah blah blah, whatever the hell, yeah, but, was, but but it was founded by an arms guy. It was and the same guy. The it same was the guy? same guy. Bruce oh my Jackson, God. Yes. Who is it? This guy should be famous. This guy should be famous. What's his name again? Uh, Bruce Jackson. I looked it up. Yeah, that's right. It's in this is uh the story is told in uh will so uh, this will guy Parton. is like single-handedly ruined the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this is he should get a medal. That's impressive. I yeah, Bill, I mean Bill Crystal's yeah, Bill Crystal's out there at MSNBC, so, and you know, yeah. Bill Crystal he, is a mere puppet. Who knew? This, this guy, <laughs> Bruce Jackson. Remember the name, folks. No, yeah. but don't don't do anything bad to him. Is he still around? I guess he is. Uh, let me see. I just pulled up his Wikipedia I'm, I'm page. Sure... Looks like he's looks like he's still around. Looks like he's elderly. He's at this point. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's in. If you go, uh, Will Hartung's book, uh, "Prophets of War." Uh, yeah. Oh, P R O P H E T S. He it's about it's about lucky. It's about. Let me quickly say something about. in Bruce Jackson's defense. I don't know him, but human beings have a remarkable capacity to convince themselves that whatever they are advocating is the right is the good thing to advocate. I'm sure. Yeah. He, I'm sure he thinks of himself as meaning well. I happen to disagree with him on two big policy issues, apparently. Yeah, but and so actually, yeah, so I'm looking at this right now. He was still vice president for strategy of finding Lockheed while PNAC. So he hadn't left He hadn't left Lockheed Martin to found uh, PNAC. It looks like this this overlapped with when the project for a new American century was actually founded. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I mean, the, the, you you scratch the surface of these things and it's, it's you know, John Bolton, another thing I point out is when I uh, read John Bolton's biography, uh, biography his, uh, his memoir, his recent memoir that came out, um, you know, he's, he's basically talking about how like you know between his stints in government he's on so many corporate boards that he can't you know juggle them all they just love john bolton for his uh for his uh business insights right i mean so <laughs> you, you know you, you see what's going on and, and i don't doubt that john bolton you know he seemed for you know he seems to believe what he oh what he's he sincere does. he seems sincere exactly yeah i mean he, he i think he's you know i think he's more pro-war than you know you would expect him to be for for his interests um and just to just to drill down on kind of in a sense absolving these people for blame for all the destruction they wreak, um, you know, my view of think tanks, which we should get into, it isn't that that the people at the think tanks, the experts think, oh, my salary is ultimately being paid by Boeing, so I'll say X, Y, and Z. The think tanks go out and find these people who genuinely believe that we should have a militaristic foreign policy, and and so you know, I, I'm not I'm not really casting aspersions on them at that level. Yeah. But go ahead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, think tanks, their money have to, you know, they they come from somewhere. And um, yeah, they're often uh, foreign governments, they're often uh, weapons manufacturers. It, it, they, they, they sometimes um, 
you know, they uh, they voluntarily um, uh, reveal this information and, you know, people can look it up. It's not like it all comes from there, but a substantial portion. And, you know, there has been reports in the New York Times that often it will come with, it's, it's a little more explicit than that. You know, there are actually strings attached. And the scholar is, you know, one step removed from like, you know, the administration, but the administration sort of, you know, uh, nudges you in certain directions and not others. And this is true for everyone. I mean, I, I've had people, uh, I've, you know, with non-interventionist people always often say, sometimes correctly, you know, you're funded by the Koch Foundation or uh, Quincy Institute, uh, Soros. And, you know, what I say about Koch and Soros is they're the only two guys funding foreign policy uh, stuff that don't have a direct financial interest in the outcome of what they're funding, right? Yeah. Um, and so they, they, they are both, we should say, people may not know this about the Kochs uh, because they just think of them as broadly right wing, but, but on foreign policy, uh, Coke is non-interventionist, uh, non-military. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So I mean, it was on my uh, on my CV online. People find. I mean, that you know, I got money as a, a and they're yeah, they're they're funding people who are of a more anti-interventionist bent. I mean, that that's anyone who's writing anything about anything has to you know is, is funded by by somebody, and so that doesn't mean they're they're right or wrong. But most of the most of the money and most of the big money uh, is uh, based by concentrated interest. People with the you know the people with the, you know and they could be people with an ideological stake. So like Coke, like Soros, uh, you know, the people, the Sheldon Adelson, um, you know, he has some financial interest, but a lot of it is actually, you know, ideological interest or concern, genuine concern about uh, Israel. Um, and, you know, you just and, have to ask who, you know, who are behind a lot of the think tanks and all of the movements. They, and, they, 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 yeah. Let me, can just, I just interject one thing? Great. I mean, you, you could attribute uh, financial motive even, even uh, to the Cokes, there is the view that if you're a capitalist and you want to make money, you want the world to be a stable place without a lot of wars. You want a lot of commercial engagement that's not impeded by sanctions and so on. Uh, in fact, I wish more capitalists would view the situation that way. But but it, it's not like so. I'm not saying any particular funder. We should assume any particular funder has you quote pure motives, but 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 they are rare in being. Significant funders, you know, Coke, Coke and Soros on, on uh, right and left, respectively, are rare in being uh, yeah. non-militaristic funders of uh, foreign right. policy. I, yeah, I think that argument, it's a little bit hard to work because, it's, you know, the, you think about sort of the cost benefit and, you know, the, 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 you know, the steps in the sort of the chain, you need to fund American foreign policy, you need it to become a less militaristic, you need more world peace, you know, there, there's a lot of steps in that chain. And so it's, it's harder to imagine than just Lockheed Martin, just funding Bill Crystal. You can see the, directly. Right, there's more, there's more money. bang per buck for the lobbying, you might <laughs> exactly. say for Lockheed Martin. That's yeah, true. exactly. And yeah, I mean, the, you know, the way the political coalitions are, you know, it's sort of the, you know, it, it tends not to work with the capitalists tend to be more on the right and they're with the weapons manufacturers. And some people say the Republican party is actually corporatist and then and then the uh uh the, the support for military budgets would would make sense but yeah you shouldn't you shouldn't dismiss or you know believe anybody based on um their interest or sincerity but if you're just sort of looking for a uh, descriptive understanding of how foreign policy works you know you should expect overwhelmingly uh public opinion and you know the voices we hear to be the ones that support uh the, the interests of concentrated interests right okay so you know what might be good is to run through a few issue areas and just uh, I, I'm thinking of three uh, countries that uh, certainly are depicted as kind of inherent adversaries, you might say, Iran, Russia and China. And certainly, uh, you know, uh, it's not like none of them, uh, any of them have, have done nothing to encourage that characterization. Uh, but um, but I, I'd like to just go through them one at a time and get your take on like, OK, so how are we viewing them, reacting to them? Why, from your perspective, 
do we have this view of them and this reaction to them? Okay. Sure. Now, the most uh, topical is probably Russia and Ukraine. Uh, so in your model, have at it. Why are we behaving the way we're, why are we thinking of Russia? I mean, right now, of course, there's a, a lot of concern and, and, and I have concern. I mean, I, I'm like, a, a you know, pretty strict about international law and, and uh, I don't think it's a good thing when countries invade other countries, but, yeah. but uh, so that's my take, but, but uh, so, but, but anyway, why do you think there is the, we're, we're, we're processing this the way we're processing it? Yeah, so I mean, the modern relationship with Russia goes to the goes back to the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, there's some uh, there's a, there's a, some debate about this, but I think most scholars who've looked seriously at it basically come to the uh, conclusion. And uh, my professor is uh, Mark, my old professor Mark Trachtenberg at UCLA is one of the people who's done research on this. Um, that basically there was a understanding that the U.S. would not uh, expand NATO, that it would not go east, right? Um, so basically, Germany is allowed to unify. I mean, what the Soviet Union does, I mean, is so historically unprecedented, right? A, a, an empire, you know, just abolishes itself overnight, you know, gives, gives, uh, basically lets these countries become indep independent. Um, and so that, you know, this is sort of, I think that, I think this is the outlook that Russians have, you know, we, we, we basically surrendered and said, your system is better. And, you know, we pulled back and, you know, what else would you, what else would you want from a country to show that it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's no longer a threat. Um, and the entire, you know, the, the entire, um, justification for NATO. I mean, the only reason it existed was because there potentially could be a Soviet attack on Western Europe. I think uh, my late uh, advisor, uh, Bob Jer Bob Jervis, um, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't think that Soviet Union ever planned such a thing. But whatever, it was plausible. It could, you know, people could have believed that. Um, and this was the this was the justification. And so NATO basically, you know, a few members got added over the over the decades. Spain was added, uh, I think, in the in the nineteen eighty around there. Um, but basically, for a long time, it was just basically set. It was just something to protect, you know, Germany, West Germany, everything, uh, everything west of that. Um, and then the, so the Soviet Union collapses, then the U.S. starts, you know, expanding it. And there's no more Soviet Union. And so you wonder what's going on. Well, you know, there you know, not many Americans are really paying attention. This is not the most salient issue in the world in the 1990s and the in the early 2000. Um, but you do have sort of a bipartisan support for continuing expansion. So these uh, former communist countries uh, come in, you know, Hungary and, and Czech Republic and these and uh, and then the U.S. and and you know a lot of it there there's um, there's lobbying on behalf of uh, uh, behalf of these governments themselves. Um, there's you know like ethnic Polish you know representatives who who, who really like the idea of Poland being defended by the U.S. Now those uh, don't quite obviously well. So you would you would categorize an ethnic constituency like that uh, under influence of foreign governments because they identify with the foreign government in your model. Uh, no, no, I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I'm just, you know, it's just sort just, of. A, OK, so this, yeah. this is a constituency that doesn't neatly fit into your three main actor model. Oh, yeah. Of, there, there's of, a lot of, you know, sort of miscellaneous, you know, things right. going on. Sure. Um, okay. And so, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, NATO expense and no one is even you know, debating why. I mean, these these countries like, you know, then eventually gets to, it sort of gets to a point of absurdity where you, you're in the last few years uh, uh, bringing in Montenegro, uh, bringing in, you know, these countries that have, you know, uh, militaries that are smaller than the police force of, you know, a lot of American cities. Um, and, you know, and so Russia, I mean, is looking at this and this clearly looks aggressive. I mean, you could you could see how this would look aggressive in the U.S. if Russia was making military alliances with, you know, every country surrounding um, the U.S. Um, the, you know, these other countries, they maybe have a rational, you know, they have a rational interest in that, in this, you know, it, it's, it's insurance. I don't think they think Russia is going to invade tomorrow, but, you know, eventually, you know, it'd be good. It's good to have 
protection from the strongest country in the world. Right. Um, and, you know, and there's also this, there's also sort of, I think this, uh, this idea that, um, you know, the, the idea that the Russian regime is, is you know, the sort of, I think the, the idea of democracy promotion in the U.S. and the, the entire time is, is solidifying as a justification for more, for American foreign policy continuing as it was. I think in the 1980s, you had people like Gene Kirkpatrick coming along and saying, you know, we can, we can make peace with certain dictators to fight, you know, communism. And I think when communism goes away and starting the 1990s, you know, the, every dictatorship becomes sort of morally suspect, right? It, it sort of doesn't have legitimacy. And so Russia- well, I mean, we still do business with a number of them uncomplainingly, but I take your point yeah. that the rationale, however inconsistently applied, yeah. Uh, there's, yeah, there's always, yeah, this, this is, yeah, this is why, like I said, yeah, the whole point is it's not very coherent, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, it's an issue when they want it to be an issue and it's not a, you know, Saudi, the Saudi Arabia uh, right. question about American foreign policy is always sort of like the refutation of everything America says it's doing. You just say, what about Saudi Arabia, right? <laughs> um, and, and so, but, you know, because, because, you know, there's a sort of an interest in keeping this going with with uh, you know this uh, conflict with Russia, the fact that Russia is anti is anti democrat is anti democrat or non democratic, you know, is a big deal and salient and something that's on the front of our minds, you know, every time we have to think about it. And I think that you know I think that Russia does see sort of the you know the idea that you know Ukraine is important culturally and historically, mm-hmm. and there's an idea that they're trying to make them you know another permanent American ally. And, you know, I think that we are, you know, we're, we're really playing with fire here because, you know, we've been, we've kept going, you know, east, you know, keep going step by step. And there's really no more, no further you can go. And there's a lot of people in the U.S. who would like to bring uh, Ukraine into NATO. I mean, they'd, li- they'd like to, you know, make that permanently, like to uh, give, give a defense guarantee. And it's so strange because there's, you know, there's no even, there's no even like, att- you know, you, there's no even attempt to explain how this is in the American national interest. You have, you always, you know, you always have to go to, it's either our values, and Ukraine, by the way, is a very corrupt country that, you know, shuts down, you know, uh, TV stations. And, you know, it's always, it's always like, right. you know, where they want to, even for like uh, these uh, democracy score things, uh, which put out by Freedom House, which I think are stupid, but even they, they don't think Ukraine is, you know, very much more democratic or uh, uncorrupt than Russia. Um, and so, and and so you know, and so we're exaggerating sort of what Russia wants. Yeah. You, this, you know, this is a first, it menaces. You know that we say these things like Putin menaces Europe. There's yeah, the Nord Stream uh, pipeline thing is very very interesting. You look at these senators who are like prioritizing this over almost any other issue. And you know, as, as Senator Rand Paul said uh, recently, you know, this is a kind of sort of protectionism. It's it's, it's uh, Ted Cruz is just in the forefront of this. Partly ideology, but I think partly there's a there's a there's a interest in the energy industry in Texas. Um, and, and, you know, th- this is, and this is sort of where we are with Russia. Yeah. So let me, I mean, first of all, one, I, I want to say, this is an example of what I meant when I said, sometimes the problem is we don't attribute enough rationality to adversaries. It, 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 it's like, and, and you're right. It, maybe that's not exactly the way to put it, but, uh, I guess you might say we, we fail to entertain the hypothesis that a lot of what they do is, from their point of view, rationally defensive. Uh, So, for example, uh, you know, Russia in Syria, uh, they have this naval station in Syria that is important to them. You, you You didn't hear that brought up when Russia was intervening in Syria, by the way, at the invitation of the Syrian government, 
So yeah. what? unlike our troops in Syria, theirs were not in violation yeah, of international yeah, law. The, yeah, exactly. This is a very, very selective use of international it, law. Exactly. Right. So, but anyway, they plausibly had an interest. They saw it as a kind of client state. We have our client states and our naval bases. Similarly, and I do not mean to defend the, the invasion and annexation of Crimea, but if you want to understand why it happened, there was a big naval base uh, there of Russia's that uh, they could have, in theory, lost if Ukraine uh, fell into hostile hands. And we had, uh, in a certain sense, intervened in Ukrainian politics uh, to help a, a non-democratic transition of power that could have been viewed plausibly as a coup by Russia that led right. to a, a president who was less, uh, a, a government that was less, a Ukrainian government less favorable to Russia than what there had been. And, and so, you just, you don't, the American media coverage does not highlight these things. And, and, and I mean, even the, the elite, especially the elite, maybe New York Times, Wall Street Journal reporting, I mean, to varying degrees, you may see it sometimes, but is this a, itself a product of what you're talking about, right? Uh, I mean, and I'm not even talking about the op-eds. We can get to those, and I want to get to those. God knows there's pretty obvious influence uh, via think tank funding and so on on who gets to write the op-eds. But even, do you agree, even the just repertorial, quote, straight news coverage of these events does a terrible job of illuminating the actual motivations at work. Yeah, and unquestionably. I mean, I, I, do, talk, I do talk a bit about the, uh, the media, the national security sort of uh, uh, re reporting community, whatever you want to call them, journalistic community. Um, and it, it's a very unique thing because it's all based on, it's based on access. So, you know, you, you, you take a typical just New York Times or Washington Post um, foreign policy article on the front page, and there's often classified information there. You know, when, when it's Assange, who's, who's released the classified information, you know, we, we put him in jail. But this is normal practice in in uh, foreign policy reporting and who gets classified information. I mean, the, you know, the, the government is basically is picking, you know, the national security establishment is picking the, uh, the journalists who are going to report on because they're the ones who are going to uh, get all the scoops. And so you can look at, um, you can look at sort of, uh, you know, one of the examples I bring up, and this is the sort of, the, there was a sort of symbiotic relationship between the national security press, people like Bob Woodward and the generals who were trying to box Obama uh, into surging in Afghanistan. Um, about a decade ago. And so, you know, th these are people, th these are the people who get ahead in national security reporting. They often have, you know, um, you know, they, they, it, it's, it's about, there was an article in, um, it was uh, Robin Wright, I think it was a New Yorker or was it yes, New York? It New York. The, the one about that. Iran recently or what? She generally writes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, the New Yorker then. Yeah. I didn't read the and, piece, you know, but yeah. Yeah, so basically, I mean, she goes to the she goes to the Middle East, and she's you know hanging out with the generals in in Syria and in Iraq, and right. you know she's basically reflecting their view about the you know the dangers of Iran, and you know no anti-war journalist is getting that uh, is getting that kind of uh, you know is getting that kind of access. Yeah. And so you can look and you can say, well, she's a good journalist. I'm sure she's a fine journalist. Um, but, you know, there's a there's a sort of a, there's, you know, there's, there's sort of an advantage here. She's going to be able to do her job better than somebody who's who, you know, the generals are going to look at, you know, with a, with a sort of suspicious eye. Right. Um, 
And so, I, you know, yeah, even the straight news reporting, I mean, you can do this, you know, anytime you can uh, do this on Twitter, other people, you know, do it elsewhere, you know, just the way that the straight news reporting um, is framed in the Times and Wall Street Journal, it'll present the facts that, you know, are, uh, that are sort of, um, yeah, like, you know, international law, you know, it will say things like, oh, you know, Putin's another violation of international law when he invaded this country, not pointing out the U.S. invades more countries than, you know, everyone else put together over the last few decades, right. you know, relevant information, I think, from a neutral perspective, but you won't find, you know, facts like that. You'll find the facts that sort of make yeah. the case from the, from the perspective of the national security establishment. Yeah. And just to uh, stick with this theme for one more moment of how our view of the Russia situation may be ultimately shaped by the uh, the interests you're describing. Um, you mentioned that, I, I gather your, uh, I don't know if he was your PhD advisor at UCLA or what, uh, Trachtenberg had done work on this question of whether the U.S. implicitly or explicitly reassured uh, Russia in the uh, long ago that we would not expand NATO after the Cold War. This is something that James Baker was supposedly involved in. Uh, uh, maybe, uh, and maybe there were other conversations as well. James Baker was, of course, Secretary of State. Uh, lately, I have seen uh, a, a, a few revisitings of that question that have. Uh, that have been on the side of, of the claim that, no, there was no such reassurance. I, I've seen a lot of that in the media lately, enough of it that I thought maybe my prior belief that there had been some kind of reassurance was just flat out wrong. But I guess in your view, it's like no coincidence that as things heat up in Ukraine and, 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 and the, 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 the policy, you know, rubber is really meeting the road here, that uh, somehow this perspective uh, is is kind of prevailing in the media. Maybe I'm imagining it. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but uh, that's what I've seen. Yeah, I mean, there's two you know two good papers. I mean, people can uh, look at for this one by a guy named John uh, Schifferinson. Um, he's a professor at Boston University, and then another by a uh, uh, Trachtenberg. I, yeah, I think I think their case the case is pretty solid. I mean, especially if you look at what people were saying at the time. Uh, Trachtenberg, uh, he does a great thing. I think the paper the article was published in a journal called International Security, um, where he goes basically day by day, and you know what, what what's going on in the German media. You know, what are they talking about? And sort of what are the what are the memoirs? saying it he really does sort of a nice little detective story and puts it together yeah i think i think the the argument is pretty uh pretty solid i mean what, what you know what people will say in response is you know they'll say things like uh you know russia didn't get it you know in writing which is which is uh you know which is true or they, they or they'll say you know they'll, they'll often go to like later decisions where they sort of uh implicitly uh, implicitly sort of uh uh accepted it you know it's it's funny because russia is also like a country that, you know, you could say, maybe we expect a little too much coherence. You know, there are little like fragments of this and that, that, that to look at what people, but I think at the top level, it's sort of the common understanding of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there was an understanding NATO wouldn't go east. And you, you could think like, you know, you could suspect why, you know, why would, you know, one explanation of why Russia didn't, you know, like get it in like a treaty or anything is like, it wasn't guaranteed that this would happen. It was not, no guarantee that the U.S. would want to continue NATO and keep going, keep going east, right? Because the, you know, the the you would think that maybe when the the entire justification for NATO, which is the Soviet Union, goes away, I mean, NATO maybe relaxes or maybe doesn't yeah. disband itself, but sort of just looks for looks for less uh, less to do. Uh, but yeah, I mean, every you have to sort of you know each one of these things are so each one of these questions is so sort of. Um, 
you know, fact dependent. So you, most people cannot even very, uh, you know, educated people who follow this stuff uh, very closely cannot research each one of these questions, um, you know, in any great depth. And you're, you know, you're, so you're always, you know, you know that you're having, you know, there's always this, uh, you know, there's always sort of these uh, interests and these people with this ideological view who have the megaphone and are always sort of, you know, presenting the version of facts that looks best for uh, for whatever, you know, they usually want to do. Um, there, you know, even even the government itself, I mean, I, the, you know, there's a, uh, uh, there's a, you know, just amazing information about the PR um, wing of the of the uh, uh, Pentagon, which I, which I believe I, I don't know if this is exactly right, but I think that their, their budget one year uh, at least was bigger than the entire budget of the State Department. So the Pentagon has its own, you know, full time, you know, PR uh, wing, and you know, there and even like think tanks like something like Rand Rand Corporation gets all, you know, gets all, all or almost all its money uh, from the from the uh, federal government. NGOs, by the way, if you look at their budgets, you know, they're they're called non governmental organizations, like literally called non governmental organizations. You look at their budget, they're like ninety percent government. I mean, it's really it's really uh, amazing how we have used these words, for, you know. Freedom House is something I've I've written about on my on my Substack, and you look at like their leaderships. It's like ex CIA director, uh, you know, ex anti uh, sec yeah. uh, uh, secretary for uh, secretary for state. So it's basically it's gets its money from the U.S. Bro government. Brookings is now run by an actual general, former general. Exactly. Yeah, Brookings. Kind of like, I mean, they, just to remove all doubt. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Brookings is probably general. Yeah, even though, but the, the yeah, the, the Brookings. Yeah, I think probably the majority of their money probably comes from like things like you know the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So not it's not as it's not like random. Well, yeah, but a lot of that's for domestic stuff. I, I mean, they yeah. they have. Uh, well, anyway, they, yeah, they, they have broad interests. Exactly. Yeah, they have broad. They have, they are not mainly a foreign policy shop, but I think if you look back at the beginning of the Iraq War, they played a non-trivial role in getting us into it. Yeah, you, um, you're 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 right there. Yeah. Yeah, but anyways, these was Freedom House. I mean, they're they're staffed by the U.S. government, basically, and they're funded by the U.S. government, and mm -hmm. you know they're they're called NGOs. I mean, there's something just sort of wrong with the way we're looking at this. So let's uh, move to another topic: Iran. Uh, very much in the news. Uh, there's the Iran nuclear deal, and there I wouldn't say. I mean, I wouldn't say the forces of the establishment are at the moment arrayed against reviving a deal. Uh, it, it's so that's kind of a complicated situation. On the other hand, I do think Iran is consistently depicted as more offensive than I think their their strategy would really be objectively appraised as being. I I I think you know they see Syria largely as a buffer state, uh, or at least partly as a buffer state, and so on. And in any event, again, by the way. They are in Syria with the permission of the government. Now, you may, no. you may not like the government. I don't like the Syrian government. But the, but the way the rules are in international relations is if the government that is in existence invites your troops into their country, you are not violating international law. Whereas when the U.S. puts troops in Syria and Israel launches strikes on Syria, they are violating international law. Those are the supposed rules. That's yeah. the end of my sermon. Now, why, why don't you... Go ahead and say what you would from your perspective about uh, Iran. 
Yeah, the yeah, yeah, I mean, it's funny because we under, you know, the foreign policy sort of press establishment understands that when it comes to U.S. being in a foreign country, you know, they'll say, oh, Ukraine has a right to join NATO, you know, if it wants to invite, you know, the U.S. in or Poland or, or anyone else. And then with Syria, you know, it becomes completely irrelevant that the government wants Russia to Iran there. And then if you bring that up, they'll say, you know, you're, you know, the Syrian government is is, is war crime, you know, they commit war crimes and they don't have any legitimacy. So, you know, they're just, you know, they're, 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 you're not going to find consistent application of uh, of these rules. Um, yeah, I I think that you're right. The establishment, I think that Obama, you know, shifted things. Now he had to, I mean, he had to really fight for the Iran nuclear deal. I mean, he would not have gotten a majority in Congress's party. You know, they didn't do a treaty because you need a two-thirds support in Senate. He wouldn't have even got a majority, right? The fact that, the, you know, the fact that he could do it uh, as a uh, as a just sort of executive action, and then you need two-thirds to overturn that, right? Because you need to pass a law, and then right. the president, you know, said you need two-thirds. So just because, you know, just the, the way it was set up, like he, you know, he could get like one-third of Congress or one-third of the, uh, yeah, one-third of Congress to go along with him. I mean, that's all, that's all that was necessary. So you had this, and I think, I think like, you know, partisanship is huge. I mean, I think it just becomes sort of associated with a Democratic president, and this had an effect to make, you know, Democrats and liberals more inclined towards favoring the Iranian nuclear deal and, you know, Republicans more sort of stringent in opposing it. And so uh, Trump comes in and he faces actual resistance from his generals, you know, one of the few times the generals, you know, I, I argue they're not always uh, unequivocally pro-war, the establishment. I think there's a, a they're pro-status quo and inertia. And, you know, the, that's that's the bias. So well, they when, like when, to have a lot of weapons. So in that way, they're aligned with the arms manufacturers. Mm -hmm. But being the, the ones who actually have to fight the wars, they do sometimes caution people caution the politicians about the difficulty of war that that's that's a real thing i think yeah that that's yeah that's occasionally a real thing sometimes they're less hawkish than the civilian i think most of the time they're more hawkish than civilians but you know in the case of, for example the route to iraq you know i think the pentagon was not necessarily more hawkish at least at the uh, low at the lower mm -hmm. level at the top they were just you know nodding along with what uh what whatever bush wanted um but the um yeah the um and so, and so you have this, you know, funny thing where the there's everything in American politics is sort of geared towards, um, geared towards confrontation with Iran. You know, one of the funny thing is the, the I talk about foreign governments. The foreign government that can influence uh, U.S. foreign policy is Iran because of the sanctions, right? So the sanctions regime has this very funny influence where if you're you Saudi said Arabia, can or can't, influence. cannot. Cannot, cannot okay. because because it can't, it can't spend money in the it has no embassy at the U.S. even I mean it's so it, right. so your UAE your Israel your Saudi Arabia you know influence American foreign policy to your heart's content um, if you're Iran you can't and you can see how this can you know obviously bias things in the run up you know the the decade before the Iraq War it was you know Saddam you know was looking for a way to talk to the U.S. it just it just couldn't I mean couldn't even communicate clearly you know what you know what he wanted or you know what, work out any kind of you know sort of a, a move away from the sanctions and towards more normalized relations um, and so you know you have to understand and sort of you have to understand sort of the landscape you know has uh, is sort of shaped by by this but you know to get back to the uh, uh, to get back to sort of more recent events. So you had the, so Trump, you know, rips up um, the Iranian nuclear deal. And I think Biden comes in and for reasons because of, you know, establishment and partisanship and every, just because it makes sense, they want to get back into the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, and I think at this point, the problem is, and Republicans will say this, that it's going to be torn up the second a Republican gets elected. Um, and I think that's unquestionably true. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, the, every Republican says this. I mean, so basically you cannot negotiate um, in a way that's, that's lasting. Anything that you can guarantee will last beyond uh, 2024. Mm -hmm. um, and this makes international negotiations, you know, 
very, very hard. Um, and, you know, that's, that's where we're stuck. And I think that's become the barrier to sort of getting back to the Iranian nuclear deal, which, uh, which you know, made sense for all involved, but, you know, is, is disliked by certain interests in this country. So what are the key interests? I mean, uh, I, I mean, obviously, Bibi Netanyahu made no secret of the fact that he opposed the deal during the, uh, I, I think, Obama administration. And, and, and as you point out, that's what, uh, well, the, the, the overall political resistance Obama faced led the deal to have a less uh, substantial foundation uh, you know, it didn't have a what it was didn't have the status of a treaty. It was easier for Trump to uh, roll back uh, to withdraw from, and that had the support of Bibi. So obviously, Israel was one actor. What uh, I mean, how would you how would you assess the overall uh, kind of array of influence on that issue? Yeah, so I mean, the U, the U, so I think that the theory behind the Iranian nuclear gel was, look, what we care about is non-proliferation. Iran has other disputes with its neighbors and other activities in the region, but let's let's shelve sort of the nuclear issue and give them something they want, which is you know sanctions relief and economic uh, integration, and take care of the nuclear issue. And I think the you know the I think the uh, Republicans and Netanyahu and and the uh, and the Gulf Arab states take a broader sort of view on uh, you know on Iranian influence, right? And they're not happy. And so they're they're unhappy with the deal that just, you know, basically, you know, uh, you know, if you if you take nuclear proliferation off the table, but Iran is better integrated in the region and has a stronger economy, that's probably a net loss for them. And they will say things like it doesn't actually prevent them from getting a nuclear bomb. Only people who are, you know, the only people who believe that are basically Republicans and Gulf states and, and the Israelis, everyone else in the world from, uh, you know, from the Europeans to the Chinese to the Russians do think that, it, you know, that it uh, uh, that it prevents them from getting a nuclear bomb, nuclear weapon. Um, so. So, you know, we, you know that that I think is not credible, but they will they'll, they'll use that argument uh, to argue against the deal. And you know, the question is, what are you know, the, the, do Saudi Arabia and Israel have you know rational um, reasons to uh, you know fear Iranian influence? Yeah, maybe. I mean, they you know the the Iranians are supporters of Palestinians. Um, they're supporters of Shia across the region, um, and you know Saudi Arabia sees that as a threat, particularly in Yemen. Um, so it's not it's not crazy that they. Uh, that they see things this way. I mean, the question I think for the U.S. is why we should care whether you know the Shia or the Sunni, you know, what the balanced power of uh, that is in any particular uh, in any particular country. You know, often you know, the Shia are the oppressed ones, like they have been in uh, Bahrain, and they uh, you know they are under Saudi. And usually the U.S. wants to be on the side of an oppressed mi uh, minority against a majority, but we don't you know we don't see it that we don't see it that way. Um, and so you know the question is what are American interests here? And it's just it's just very hard to understand outside the context of there's you know very influential actors who who want American interest to be just checking Iran more generally. And the arms manufacturers, I, I you know I think uh, you know if you look at the most kind of anti-Iranian think think tank, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, I'm I'm pretty sure they get arms they get arms money right. The the uh, uh, so I guess you would say the arms makers are are uh, I mean I don't know. It's an interesting question. It's like, it probably isn't so much they favor actual war. They just favor depicting everyone as hostile enough so that we have to keep buying weapons, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and so they, they do seem to be funding some of the depiction of Iran as a mortal threat to the world. Yeah, well, I think, it, I think it's, uh, so I, I think it's sort of a, um, 
so you you fund certain people who you know like i think my model is basically they want bigger military budgets and so that's their direct interest right mm-hmm. and so they fund people who want bigger military budgets people who want bigger military budgets have other opinions that they bring along with it right um so those people tend to be the ones that they uh rise to uh prominence and influence, and they have opinions about, you know, everyone potentially being a threat. So I don't think that weapons manufacturers necessarily, you know, want war all the time. Sometimes maybe they do, or sometimes they don't. I I think that's less direct to their interests. I think that's a byproduct of them supporting people, uh, getting people in those positions of power is a byproduct of them supporting bigger military budgets Mm -hmm. and finding people who would support that. And they certainly want to sell weapons to Ukraine and Taiwan and anyone else who will buy them. Uh, Of course. Yeah. Oh yeah. There, there it's more direct. Yeah. When there's a, when there's a interest in in selling weapons, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You're right. Right so, so that Taiwan brings us to China. How do you size that whole situation up now? Yeah, so I mean, there's a, a real, I mean, geopolitical issue where China is, you know, but if you measure, depending on how you measure the largest economy in the world, or uh, we'll soon get there. And it's natural, it's gonna, you know, it's the it's sort of relations with the world will change like any rising power in, in human history. Um, I think there was a lot of, you know, I, so I have a, I have a chapter on, on China, and there's sort of this myth that in the 1990s, um, you know, there was this idea that it, you know, people thought that it would democratize, it would uh, become like us if we just traded with them. I don't think that that's, you know, I don't think that's what's going on because that doesn't really make any sense. I mean, even if it did democratize, like it would, you know, that that goes against American hegemony, right? There are there are 1.4 billion people now, and they were going to be the biggest, strongest country in the world. So, like, first of all, you, you know, it was a strange thing to back up bank on like the internal political developments in the country. Uh, this, you know, the second, the you know, the second thing is even if those developments did, you know, uh, did go in the direction predicted, uh, you know, they would still be a rival. I mean, just because they're, you know, they're they're such a big and strong, you know, they're such a big country. Um, and so I think, you know, but my understanding of, you know, the what we do with China is basically the concentrated interest here was business and business wanted open up China. And I think it was a good, you know, it was a good thing. It was good for China. It was good for the US. It was good for humanity, mostly despite any, despite some problems. Um, and then at the same time, because we don't have a grand strategy, the military was also, you know, doing things to sort of, um, to, to make sure that the US stayed in the region and tried to be the dominant power and have influence over uh, uh, the US allies. So it was sort of inevitable that economic integration would lead to China becoming the, uh, this probably would have happened anyway, becoming the dominant power in East Asia. Uh, But we weren't ready to accept the sort of geopolitical and military consequences of that. And so look, I mean, China has border disputes with its neighbors. I mean, the the U.S. doesn't have border disputes with with Latin America because it settles them. I mean, if if the U.S. had a border dispute with Mexico, you know, that would be, it wouldn't last, it wouldn't last for very long, right? And so China has these border disputes. Some of them are, you know, are a little bit more, you know, are a little bit more unreasonable, like, you know, the, the 15 dash line in the South China Sea. Some of them are just things that have been there forever, like the conflict with uh, with India. Um, and then, you know, Taiwan, but the, the, you know, the Taiwan issue is the big one. And I think this is the sort of the, the, the place where um, it's hard to reconcile what America wants and what China wants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they see it, they see it as part of, they see it as part of China. And we, 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 you know, we negotiated with them and never, um, you know, they, there's a biography of Deng Xiao, uh, Xiaoping uh, by uh, uh, Ezra Vogel. It basically talks about what uh, Deng was, um, you know, was uh, they were opening up China. There was basically an understanding of American leaders at the time, at the, at, the, at least in the Carter administration, um, that you know eventually Taiwan would become part of China. I mean, it was just something we were going to live with because. Um, you know, we weren't going to fight them over it. It was China cared a lot more about it than we did. Well, we supported um, the actual transfer of the United Nations seat 
from Taiwan to China. That you know, kind of suggested that we we agreed with them on the. On the yeah, I, every signal was we could live with you know whatever right. happened, uh, whatever right. happened between China and Taiwan. And now we, it's become you know it's very strange. You know, it's it's like it's like oh did they, you know they they hid you know they hid uh, you know maybe the maybe coronavirus leaked, leaked from the lab. Like okay, so so and then there's like okay, there's the situation with the Uyghurs, there's a situation with Hong Kong, and then it becomes military confrontation and like the 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 sort of the the logical connection between whether like you know the coronavirus leaked from a lab in Wuhan and like what the US should do about Taiwan is not very or whether we should boycott the Olympics or whatever you know it's it's not really there that they're not making I think I think it's it's more along you know it's more along the lines of it you think about it as sort of you're trying to just create this idea that China is bad, right? So you're throwing everything yeah. against the wall. And then when it comes to talking about something concrete like Taiwan or, you know, potentially, you know, uh, fighting over some stupid islands, you know, that Japan also claims, you know, the people's ideas are just China so bad, China is so aggressive and so evil and so malevolent um, that people will go along uh, with, you know, what, what the uh, foreign policy hawks want to do. But, you know, in reality, you know, Taiwan, I mean, the, 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 the Taiwan, you know, doesn't doesn't matter. I mean, the semiconductor thing. Look, I mean, if, if they took China took it over, they would just sell you the semiconductors. If you're really worried about that, if there's you know if there's some kind of adjustment cost, there's there's I don't think you could do the math where um, where you know a war is less costly than you know whatever it would cost to to replicate um, uh, the semiconductor industry or buy it from somewhere you know buy it from somewhere else. The market you know will will adjust, and so you have these um, and so you have these you have the, you have basically you have this. I think you know, I think what's going on, I guess, at the broader level is that you know there's always a need for um, some kind of foreign adventurism because you know the the military budget is there and you know the, all these people's jobs depend on it. So in the 1990s, that's when the Soviet Union collapsed. That's when we started hearing about rogue states and the responsibility to protect. Mm -hmm. um, then we had 9/11, and that you know that, uh, that uh, really the responsibility to protect being the idea that uh, you know if governments fail. Well, it basically winds up being a justification for military intervention on grounds of human rights violations within a country, yeah, which had not exactly. been a big part of international law prior to that. Uh, so anyway, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think it's a coincidence we started hearing about that in the 1990s when there sort of needed to be a new justification for American foreign policy. But then 9-11 happens. And I think, you know, the war on terror is sort of uh, winding down. It really doesn't scare people. It doesn't give us much to do. And I think that the focus on China is sort of is, is sort of a result of that and that it's the next, you know, it's the next thing that we have to uh, we have to worry about. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, the you know, the U.S., I mean, it's it really I mean, we're lucky that there's a rising power and it's not, it, there's no indications that it's crazy that it wants to, you know, militarily conquer the world. There's no longstanding border dispute or anything natural sort of a conflict of interest that the U.S. has with it. Um, you know, we should, we should, I think we should, you know, live with the fact that it's going to be a stronger country and it's going to have more geopolitical influence. It's going to settle disputes with Vietnam and, Philipp and the Philippines on its own terms because it's much, much bigger, just like the U.S. settles disputes with uh, Latin America on its own terms. And, you know, we should, you know, ho hope that it's, you know, humane and, it, it, you know, there's no uh, wars or intervention or anything like that. But, you know, the idea that China is just going to be another country in East Asia um, is, is just naive. And, and I think I think we have to realize that. And how would you uh, allocate responsibility among your big three actors, the national security establishment, the arms makers and foreign governments for uh, the view 
this common view of China that you see as not entirely justified. That is to say, the, the, the view of it as some kind of implacable uh, adversary or expansionist power. Yeah, I think they're all there, but I think that I think that probably the national security establishment is big here because this is sort of this is a I talk to people in D.C. and they say if you want to sell any idea to sort of you know getting funding from the Pentagon or, or some research establishment, you have to frame it as you know the U.S. is gearing towards conflict with China. And you know you look at the White House documents, uh, national strategy documents produced during uh, the Trump administration. This was this was a really really big idea. I think that I think that if you don't have if China is not there, if the, if the so-called China threat is not there. You have really a crisis in the foreign policy establishment because there, there's no existential risk. There's no nothing really much to do now that terrorism is sort of seen as you know something in the, something in the rearview mirror, right? You you need yeah. sort of China to, to to justify the whole thing. So I think that's I think that's what's mostly driving it. Of course, you have foreign governments too, but I, yeah, I don't think they're playing a huge Yeah, I mean role. Taiwan, the Taiwanese government, they lobby, they have money, they can buy arms, they they yeah. and so on. It's it's not trivial. Yeah. Uh, the um. Yeah, you're you just kind of alluded to something. I mean, sometimes I think the issue is partly, I mean, again, money shapes what kinds of people get hired by think tanks and so on. But I also think there's just uh, there's come to be something about kind of the self conception of people who are drawn into the establishment, whether it's like think tanks or the 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 you know or government service. There's a kind of a self-dramatization that, look, we are all prey to. We all think we're more important than we are. I get it. But there's this, you, you know what I mean, kind of like, does this not make any sense to you? No, it, yeah. It, no, it makes it makes sense. I think you can see that, you know, you, the focus on money and concentrated interest should not distract us from these people believe it. And I think Twitter is such a great tool, not just on this issue, but everything else, because you see people's it, you see their reaction to things in real time. And, you know, people are not, you know, on Twitter 24 hours a day, you know, because they're, they're being paid often, you know, they, they, they may end up making fools of themselves. Uh, but you could really see the emotional reaction to like, for example, when Trump wanted to pull out of Syria, or you could see the emotional reaction uh, to Biden ending the war in Afghanistan. Um, yeah, I mean, people are very good at convincing themselves what they want. To believe. I mean, some people maybe would come to these conclusions, you know, naturally, and they get they get positions of uh, power and influence. And um, yeah, I mean, they they. I mean, it's you could see the, you could see the appeal of that. You could see the appeal of a historical narrative where you know there's international anarchy, bad things happen. You have World War One, you have World War Two. The U.S. comes in, it beats Nazi Germany, uh, it stands up to communism, um, it ends, it eventually helps end the uh, Soviet Union. And like, if there's nothing like that now, um, you just, you know, what, you know, that, that, that's, that can be sort of emotionally and like sort of spiritually deflating. You know, I, I think that, uh, I think electoral politics matter a lot too. I think Republicans are sort of have this muscle memory of, you know, that the, the Cold War was, and the war on terror were generally good for them, that when international issues rose in salience, one thing political scientists say is when basically domestic, classically when domestic issues were higher in salience, uh, Democrats did better. And when international issues were higher in salience or social issues, Republicans tended to do better. That might not hold as much anymore, but there's sort of this muscle memory, okay, you know, war, uh, war on terror, cold war. And, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the, them, uh, you know, it's a hint that they're all all the same, talking about the Chinese Communist Party, which you know well, that's that's what it is. But like, I, I've never I've heard that term more in the last like two years than I heard you know the entire history of of Rüdiger or talking about China. So it, it seems like this sort of this nostalgia for the Cold War right. when China the use is of less the communist. Word. 
Yeah. When China's less communist than ever. Yeah. Right. It's true that it's called the Communist Party, but this is not a communist country. I mean, yeah. It, 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 there, there are, it, you know, it's also not a liberal democracy and, and there are unflattering terms you can accurately apply to it, but communist is not one of them. Um, the, the uh, So, yeah. And, you know, I, on the human rights issue, I mean, I always find this challenging because it's good to be aware of human rights issues in that sense. You know, it's good that there's a human rights lobby in these groups that uh, shed light on human rights problems. Uh, but in my view, usually when we, most of our attempts to do something about human rights make things worse for the humans themselves. There are two forms of intervention. One is economic sanctions. The other is military. Those are the two main things. It just seems like usually we make things worse. The sanctions hurt the people we claim to be protecting and so on. Uh, And I'm kind of heartened by knowing at least a few people who work at these human rights groups who seem uh, at least a little aware of this tension. Uh, But what uh what's your take on the human rights lobby um yeah so i have i have a chapter on on sanctions in the book and it's you know the sanctions regime i mean it's it's really brutal i mean the the u.s will cut a country off from the entire international um, economic system and like you can't you know use your you can't use your credit card there nobody can have banking and then you have like a humanitarian said okay we'll let some u.n food in there like no like imagine if someone destroyed the entire american economy put us in the great depression and then you know let us have a little bit of aid and said you know this is a humanitarian uh policy it's the cutting off of the economic economic um uh you know avenues of sort of growth and you know, um, being people being able to live their lives—that's important more than the than the aid, which is the foreign policy establishment focuses on. So yeah, with the, you know, the, it's a standard response. You don't like something that happened in a uh, uh, in a foreign country, what the what the government is doing. So you put sanctions on. Uh, sometimes they're targeted, but sometimes they're much broader. And you'll basically say we want to hurt the government, and you hurt the government by destroying the entire economy of the people. Um, and you can look at—I mean, you can look at some studies that we've done. One study suggested you know forty thousand deaths in excess deaths in one year in Venezuela. Venezuela was already having economic problems, and then the Trump administration uh, made it much worse by going all in on uh, a regime change. Um, and so it's it's questionable. You know, often human rights is just posturing. I mean, it doesn't do anything. And then often when it does lead to action, it's negative and, and hurts more people. I, one example in China right now, uh, you know, there's a bad situation. There's obviously uh, abuses against the, the Uyghur population, and what the U what the U.S. has been doing is to decide to ban all trade with anybody in, in, in uh, with anything made in Xinjiang. And so, like, basically, you're saying no Uyghur can get a job because some Uyghurs uh, suffered uh, under under the Chinese regime. And so they'll call it like slave labor, or they'll they'll say it has to be proven, which you know it's impossible to prove that you know at every step of the uh, supply chain. Um, and so you know you have to think carefully. You mean they say they say to, if you're going to buy it, you have to prove that there was no coercive slave labor, whatever. Uh, yeah, and I, and I, my, yeah, my and my, my understanding, target. it's okay. basically an impossible. It's impossible standard, so it's just basically a ban on anything. So companies coming. just avoid the whole region. Exactly, which is not good. Not good for Uyghurs. I mean, and and you know, this is sort of directly analogous to what's happening. Uh, what's the Cuba policy has been for for sixty years, um, more than sixty years at this point. I, right. About sixty years. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there, there's a there's a real problem here. I mean, and, and there's you know. A couple of things you could say about human rights. I wrote a, a paper on um, uh, the U.S. involvement in Syria. Often, it, it, wanting to do something about human rights makes it worse because the countries basically commit atrocities when they're feeling threatened. 
So if mm-hmm. the U.S. is going for regime change against the government, um, the government has more of an in, uh, more of an interest in clamping down on dissent. And I think this happened. In, I think this happened in Syria. Um, we made the government poor. We made it more desperate. We put its back again, back against the wall. We basically like we basically told the Syrian government, you're you know you're you're going to end up like Gaddafi. You're you know you're you, you know we're going to support people until <laughs> until they come and they kill you. And they're really you know, their back backs really were up against the wall. I mean I think that's clear from uh, the historical uh, the you know the historical record in, in Syria. And so. So it's it's often like it's often like this. I mean, the you know if the U.S. you know uh, bangs his uh, bangs its um, fist on the table about Hong Kong and the Uyghurs, does that make Hong Kong or the Uyghurs better off? The the the, the you know the, the people you know it's it's hard to show that. It usually makes them worse off because all we have in the toolbox is basically sanctions and war, and both of those options are often very bad for the people uh, on the ground. Um, so you know I think it's admirable. To care about human rights. I mean, another thing that's important for human rights and people being noblesse is having a stable government, right? So we, you know, we go and we get rid of a human rights violator, and then you have 20, you know, 20 years of civil war. Did we improve human rights in, in Iraq? <laughs> like, like, no, like we we you know, we had a we had some you know bad things happening and we we came and we we made it worse. So I think we need to be thinking carefully about you know, the connections between whatever actions we decide to take and the outcome. And there's just no indication that we've been doing that. Well, the craziest thing to me in political terms right now is the Afghanistan thing where Biden, by continuing to withhold significant resources, is, it seems to me, ensuring that the withdrawal is going to be viewed as a disaster because there's going to be a humanitarian disaster. I don't understand why, I don't understand why he wants to do that. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm yeah, that's I mean that's a that's a political case for yeah. So Afghanistan, right? You know, it's really just heartbreaking because when you, you know, when they were trying to argue against withdrawal, the idea was we can't abandon the Afghan people, and ba- and basically the Taliban comes in and they win. Basically, they take the country without a civil war. So you know, the that that concern that it would be a bloodbath was largely you know was largely uh, it, it didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, but now now the real threat to the Afghan people is basically mass starvation because it was dependent on foreign aid and U.S. sanctions go beyond beyond just withholding um, the money Afghanistan has, it makes it difficult for any aid agency or any business to, to do anything with um, uh-huh. Afghanistan. And for the most part, these voices that cared about Afghanistan, you know, uh, uh, six months ago, they're just, they're just not there. Um, and, you know, you wonder, you know, what's going on with these people? Are they just, you know, are they, are they cynical or are they just, you know, can they only sort of get excited about a human rights violation if, if it involves them riding to the rescue as heroes, you know, with with guns and bombs, right? Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's what's going on here. But yeah, just study Afghanistan to see sort of how seriously you should take these humanitarian concerns when they're used to justify a broken foreign policy. Okay, my final question, and after this, I'll let you say whatever you want about the the book before we go. But um, is, is it the case that China, I- Iran, Russia, because the, their their political systems are less pluralistic? Now, I, I think you know the, the we overestimate the extent to which so-called autocracies are autocracies. The fact is, uh, and I think one mistake we make is not understanding that even so-called dictators do have to be responsive to domestic constituencies. They certainly care what the people think about them. That said, these systems are less obviously pluralistic. Does that mean that their foreign policies actually are more coherent than ours? Yeah, I mean, it could it could be the case. Now, I think each one of these. Uh... 
which one of these countries is a little bit different. I think Iran actually does have a lot of pluralism. I mean, the fact that they have a, you know, a religious police and they have, you know, some lines, you know, they don't allow to be crossed as far as civil society and, you know, rights for women doesn't mean that there isn't something resembling. And, and they have elections that have a kind yeah. of consequence, even if the, you know, candidates are screened and so on. But exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's real politics. There's real politics in Iran. Yeah. So one of the, yeah, one of the axes you can look at is sort of authoritarian versus democracy. But another thing is often our disputes with these countries are things that they have a much more direct interest in. So like I said, when the US and the World War II has something more like a grand strategy. So when Russia is thinking about Ukraine, it's not like when the US is thinking about Ukraine. Ukraine in the US is just a word sort of, you know, people get most passionate about, uh, you know, it is, uh, you know, uh, something to like impeach Trump over or, or defend Trump over, right? Uh, we, Ukraine is just such an abstraction to us. And maybe it's the, you know, hundredth most important thing in our politics. And for Russia, it's near the top, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's going to get, you know, the government's time and attention and, and efforts and, you know, the the U.S. I think could have more of a grand strategy, you know, if if we actually face some kind of invasion uh, from abroad. Um, and so, so you have to think about, you know, sort of the, you know, when I say there's no American grand strategy, it's like these broad strategies about liberal internationalism or our our primacy. Um, you know, as far as like what to do about country X, which is the extent of our disputes with other countries, like China is about mostly about Taiwan, uh, Iran is about Israel and, and the Gulf countries um, and its neighbors. Um, you know, so like whether you could have a strategy towards one or two battlefields or one or two potential battlefields versus whether you could have like a upholding a global order. So we're talking sort of different definitions of grand strategy when we're uh, we're talking here. Mm -hmm. uh, but sort of the broader like sort of political science-y kind of question is whether authoritarian regimes in general just might be better at planning. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's not just foreign policy. I mean, I think we could look at the coronavirus response in, in China versus the U.S. I think this is just such a broad and interesting question. And because it's so broad and interesting, I, I don't really, I punt, like I said, I punt on it on the book and, and try to, you know, explain yeah. American foreign policy and, and leave it at that. That's, an, that's enough for any one person, I think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about the book before we go? Uh, not really. I mean, it's it's expensive, um, a hardcover because it's academic books often do this. The Kindle is uh, more more affordable. Um, so you know, if you and you don't actually need a Kindle device to own a Kindle. I, I, somebody, uh, you know, somebody I saw uh, said I don't have a Kindle. No, you can read a Kindle on on your uh, iPhone or, or or your uh, computer or, or whatever. So yeah, you can get the book, and and I, I highly recommend it. Okay, it's called Public Choice Theory <laughs> and no. the Illusion of Grand Strategy. How Generals, Weapons Manufacturers, and Foreign Governments Shape American Foreign Policy. And uh, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, they can find me just under my name, Richard Hanania. Um, I'll pop up and then richardhanania.substack, and you, know, you can stay updated. Uh, CSPI Podcast, that's the uh, podcast that I have for my uh, organization, and CSPI.org uh, on Twitter, cspicenter.org. But yeah, just sign up to my Substack. I think you'll be able to find everything from there. And I am at Robert Ryder. Uh, on Twitter. And as long as we're talking Substack, I, I put out the non-zero newsletter. Well, congratulations on the book. It's your first book. Uh, and uh, so enjoy enjoy the experience, the fame, the celebrity, uh, which I, I'm sure is already coming your way, as it always does <laughs> with books in my opinion. Right? Okay. All right. Uh, Thanks no, a lot, uh, Richard. Uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, well, uh, well, let's, too soon to tell. Uh, but but, but it's, we'll it's see a, how much celebrity it, get out of the out of the book on international relations theory. It's an extremely worthwhile book, so uh, I, everybody should get I it. Appreciate on, that on the, on the Kindle platform of their choice. All right, thanks, Richard.